First, uh, we called up CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. He has been following the back and forth turmoil in the House of Representatives with the fear of a government shutdown pushing members to pass another stopgap spending measure. I asked Scott to describe the situation in the Congress. Oh, this is like a bad movie trilogy where each of the three movies was terrible. The continuing resolution that has been passed to keep the government open is the same thing we saw in November, and it was the same thing we saw September 30th. This is the third version of kicking the can down the curb and just sliding deadlines a few weeks at a time. So the new deadlines to keep the government open, to avoid a shutdown, furloughs, paycheck interruptions, is going to be March 1st and March 8th. Now, those dates are about six weeks away. But to be clear, Colleen, this is still the work of 2023 Congress is trying to do. And now we're deep into 2024 by the time the next deadline hits. They're getting nowhere, and they're getting nowhere fast. What does this measure include that allowed it to push through? There was so much opposition that the last speaker lost his job when he tried to do this. Right. When this happened the first time during the first movie, the the hero of the film, the leader of the house, was exiled to a different planet. Um, here's the thing. Uh, this plan is the same deal we've had the last two times. Same spending, same programs, no new poison pills, no new controversial proposals. This is really the status quo. But they're nowhere on doing the bigger job, which is funding government for all of 2024 and doing the things you're supposed to do when you pay for government services, add new programs, make changes to policies, make restrictions, open up new opportunities. They're just doing temporary piecemeal work. And none of that, Colleen. None of that bodes well for the bigger picture issues like a deal on Ukraine aid, a deal on Israel aid, that border security negotiation that they've undertaken. If they can't do the simple stuff, the blocking and tackling of government, how are they going to do the next level stuff that's in the queue and ready to be done? We're talking with CBS's Scott McFarland. With the passing of this measure, I asked Scott if Speaker Mike Johnson, a House Republican, is receiving any backlash from uh, his colleagues or constituents. You can just feel the blood pressure rising politically. Um, The concerns and complaints about Mike Johnson are growing in frequency and volume from some of those Freedom Caucus members. They don't like all these short-term deals. They think he's surrendering to the administration and to Democrats. Mike Johnson would counterpunch, I think, that he can afford to lose only one vote on any issue if he wants to part, pass it by party line measures. I mean, the majority is so slim now that any one or two absences can cost him anything he wants to pass unless he makes deals with Democrats. That's the reality of 2024 in the U.S. House. Mike Johnson seems to have grasped that, but he still has this restive group of House Republicans who think he's gone soft for now. They're not making any push to oust him like they did Kevin McCarthy, but probably should emphasize that's for now. That is CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. 618 on Seattle's Morning News. And from the pinball of arguments between sides in Congress to real pinball competitions right here in Seattle, Cairo News Radio's Paul Holden brings us a preview of the exciting state championship happening this weekend. It's the battle of the best this weekend at the Icebox Arcade in Ballard. The state's top pinball players go head-to-head for the Washington State Pinball Championships. People qualify by playing a whole year worth of tournament in Washington State. 
and the top 16 or 24 players from the whole year make it into the final and the winner of that get the Washington State champion. That's Jermaine Mariello, tournament director for the event. The IFPA or International Flipper Pinball Association is the governing body of competitive pinball and has been running events since the 90s. And here in Seattle, the scene is growing. Vanessa Ish has been an active player for six years. I spend a lot of Friday nights competing uh, and also the NWPAS in Tacoma is a big point scorer. Um, and yeah, there's there's pretty much a tournament every night of the week somewhere in Seattle that you can join. In order for an event to qualify towards the state championships, events have specific IFPA rules they have to follow. Co-tournament director Ashley Weaver says it starts with the right people. That's one of the requirements uh, that, that there's a tournament director present. There's a dollar per player fee. There's all sorts, you know, machines have to have a tilt bob. I mean, you'd have to go read the International Flipper Pinball Association website to find out all the rules. Video games continue to be one of the most popular entertainment options. But with the shift to games being mostly online, events like the Washington State Pinball Championships highlight one of the best parts of the game, the community. It's very social being, you know, a physical game. Um, you, you have to go out there. You have to play with people, right? So um, a lot of the environment, the competition, but it's a very, it's a pretty friendly environment. Obviously, there's a lot of competitors that are serious about it as well, but, um, you know, you always play with somebody. While the community is one of the strengths, I asked if there are any pros and cons of being a completely in-person type of game. It's pros and cons. I mean, that, that's I think it's it set pinball apart from a lot of the other games. But the problem is, you know, you need to get people out there, which you know, it's a lot easier to sit in front of your Xbox and start playing a game, and you get millions of gamers online. But to get people out into pinball location, uh, it's a bit more difficult, right? So you know, it's a cool hobby, but it's pretty niche. Let's be clear; it's not like we're not talking millions of gamers here. Uh, you know, it's just a tight knit communities for pinball. They want to make social interaction with, you know, getting their skills better and having a bit of luck in pinball always helps to have a chance of winning. So even a, a you know, a, a more beginner player always has a certain amount of chance to to win against a, a better player because there's a bit of that luck factor in pinball, right? Kind of like poker, better skills help avoid and reduce the amount of luck, but there's always a luck that you cannot beat somebody that is stronger than you you keep trying, right? So it, it has that one more game aspect to it. I just wanted to add on, Jermaine was saying it was a niche sport and it is, but I looked up the Washington standings and there were around 1500 people in the standings in Washington state. So niche, but growing. Thanks to a new rule from the IFPA, competitors this weekend at the Icebox will have to tackle machines from across eras. Where they require um, location to have three category of machine by... Uh, era so the older machine the mid machine and the newer machine and every uh competitor has to pick one of each uh in their head-to-head uh, -head best of seven round against someone else so to to show skills across different types of machines if a player takes home a win they will qualify for a shot at the national title and for the first time this is the first year that they're having a women's national tournament as well so very exciting stuff it's too late to compete for the state championships but at the icebox this weekend there will be walk-in tournaments for anyone to come in and try their luck so i asked the players for some tips for starters i think just have fun that's the main rule um you're not going to be good when you start out no one is 
So it's just getting the practice, getting the feel for the machines, uh, getting to know the rule sets of each pinball machine, and honestly, the idiosyncrasies of each specific machine at the different venues uh, is sometimes uh, impactful. Um, yeah, but the main rule is just have fun. Uh, I always tell people, don't flip both flippers at once. Try and slow the ball down. And once you can slow the ball down and control it or trap up, think about your shot before you let it rip. The ball launches for the Washington State Pinball Championships tomorrow at the Icebox in Ballard. Paul Holden, Cairo News Radio. Oh, this sounds... That was a good tip. Don't do the flippers at the same time. No, I, I don't I'm have all any about strategy. bumping the bad boy. Yeah. Tilt, 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 tilt. I have zero strategy. I'm just like, hoping that the flippers hit the ball, right? <laughs> kind of like me playing centipede. I just don't. Or like, yeah, playing, what was that? But Street Fighter back in the day. I had no button strategy. I just mashed the buttons until I. Yeah, that's my wife's method of playing video games now. That's what I do when I play defense in Madden. Switch to the right guy. Switch to the right guy. In the nation's north. West corner. A little touch of Catholic Washington. Mass there this morning. Everyone's saying all the words Thank along. You. I knew I always meant for the. Uh, <laughs> if that was the case, we'd over. <laughs> Trust me, as a Catholic, we don't, yeah. we don't want to talk too loud. Well, isn't it they've got you and also with you? Isn't that what it is? Yeah. Also they've got you and with your spirit. And also with you. Peace be with you. And with your spirit now. Yes. Come Please on. turn to the microphone next to you and express your feelings. <laughs> I went to a couple Catholic masses. Our resident historian Felix Bennell joins us every Friday morning for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. I hear we're talking about a shack in Kirkland. Well, I think like to think of it as a mystery cottage. Okay. It's on 6th Street. <laughs> That's like calling something quaint <laughs> and a it's big just sign. small. And it says on it, mystery yeah. cottage. No, there's no sign. It's on 6th Street South in Kirkland. This is just south of Google, excuse me, just north of Google, on a little triangle-shaped piece of land right alongside the old railroad tracks. It's now called the Cross Kirkland Corridor, or East Rail. The cottage is red with white trim, measures about 14 by 18, little extended area in back, and a porch in front, and a creek running alongside picturesquely. Cute. I've driven past it for as long as I can remember. Always thought it was intriguing. Visited again a few days ago and saw the cottage was boarded up. One of those land use signs had been installed but was laying on the ground. So I got in touch with Loita Hawkinson at Kirkland Heritage Society to try and learn the history. She knew exactly which house I was calling about. It is probably the most iconic thing. I, we get requests a lot, you know, at Kirkland Heritage, get phone messages and emails about one property or another. And this is probably the property that we hear the most about. What is that little house? What is the story? So I've been looking at that house and looking it up and trying to find out more about it for, oh, for decades. Little Cottage is about 80 years old. It was built by the Fisk family in 1945, who lived in a big house next door beginning a few years before that. The Fisks are related by marriage to the Berto family, which is an old name in Kirkland. Mm. Two Fisk's children grew up in that big house, and one of them just recently passed away, but was living in that big house next door until late 2022. What nobody seems to know is if the little cottage was an actual separate residence or just some kind of shed. Theories have come up, on, uh, come up on social media this week about railroad workers living in it, about Mr. Fisk keeping his pigeons there. I mean, you, you name it. It's the look of the cottage with that little porch, the mullion windows, and the creek. It seems to invite speculation or even a kind of fantasizing. So the really good news is that um, some Fisk relatives who live out of state, when they put it on the property on the market last year, several Kirkland citizens reached out to the city to say, hey, why don't we buy that to make it a park since it's right by the trail? So the city managed to do just that. They bought the property for $800,000, which was discounted from the million-dollar asking price in exchange for calling it Fisk Family Park. Cute. 
The official park signs aren't up yet, but they're coming very soon. They'll put in some benches and garbage cans. Talk to Toby Nixon, who until recently was a member of the Kirkland City Council. He was very much in favor of buying that land for the park, especially because the neighborhood's getting more and more dense, like every part of the east side. He's also a little worried about the cottage. I would hate to see it torn down just because it's kind of a historical thing. And especially if Loita can document something of historical significance that happened on that property, then it would be easier for the city to make the decision to try to preserve it as opposed to, you know, clearing it off and building a picnic shelter or something like that. So I talked to Deputy Director of Kirkland Parks, John Lloyd. He's also thrilled the public came forward to suggest buying the park and that the sale came together. He said the cottage is completely empty now. He can't see any evidence of a kitchen or a bath, but there's electrical and some kind of plumbing. Overall, he said it's not in great condition. But John Lloyd says the city of Kirkland knows that many people care about the little cottage and are paying attention, and a decision about its future has just not yet been made. We don't want to just rip it down without having to engage the community um, or at least explain why we're doing what we're doing to that because it's, it's a recognizable structure. Um, and so we want to take a little time and care to uh, engage the community on that. The timeline of that, it'll probably be a little bit later this spring um, as we start uh, getting a little more active with that site. So if Kirkland people care about the little cottage, now is the time to step forward, let the city know. Or if they want to tear it down, let the city know that, too. This, this is a news <laughs> no. story. This isn't some, like, whack job, site, you know, uh, twisted tale here. Anyway, in the meantime, the history of the cottage is still a little bit of a mystery. There's still more to be found out. I'm sure someone in Kirkland knows about it. I've got it posted a picture at my Facebook page. Go there. If you know about the cottage, let us know, because there's so much great history that needs to be teased out in, in this now very public space. On Fridays, we call up CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent and moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan wanted to ask Margaret about U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was in Davos this week for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, calling for a pathway to a Palestinian state as the only way for Israel to achieve genuine security. This call was in sharp contrast to conservative Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's view on the matter. So I asked Margaret for the details. The U.S. is the largest provider of military aid, intelligence support, foreign aid to Israel. Uh, And that continues, but there is a widening divide between the uh, right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu and Joe Biden's administration. Though you hear the Biden administration publicly voice what seems like unwavering support for Israel, they are not comfortable with the type of warfare that is being waged in Gaza that has caused such high Uh, casualty rates, particularly among Palestinian children. So there is this shift towards trying to get them to change tactics. They'll continue the war. There's also this press towards you have to offer a diplomatic solution uh, to those Palestinians who want to live in peace so that they don't just end up in the clutches of Hamas. That's the administration's argument. And Netanyahu is just closing the door on that. So it is complete frustration to the United States as well as to Europe Uh, In the U.S. Congress, there is debate over whether that should have consequences in terms of restrictions on U.S. aid. But at this point, the White House is not putting any restrictions on U.S. aid, and they're struggling to get the Congress to approve more billions of dollars in military support for that country. So tension is rising. We're talking with CBS's Margaret Brennan, and I asked Margaret whether the differences between President Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, if that could cause the U.S. to cut off aid to Israel? That is a question that a number of Senate Democrats raised this week. Um, Certainly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is very clear. They're uncomfortable. Bernie Sanders led that charge saying, saying that he wasn't advocating for cutting aid. He was 
he was advocating for restrictions being placed on aid that would require observing international law. Mm. Uh, and the White House said they won't put that restriction on Israel because it would um, require too much of a review process and not get them aid fast enough. That was their argument against it. But Joe Biden is seen uh, by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is so lockstep with Benjamin Netanyahu that we are seeing it show up as a reason for some of those base Democratic voters to, to, to be a bit disaffected. I'm out here in Michigan where that is going to be a key issue. This state has more than 200,000 Arab American voters in it. This is a swing state. Every vote matters in these very narrow elections. And so, um, you know, putting it in the framework of presidential politics uh, is something that we want to also talk about. Because on the merits, the humanitarian issues certainly are there and you can have a debate about it. On the politics, it could become trickier and trickier for Joe Biden. Uh, And so we will talk about that on Sunday as well. Right. Let's talk about Sunday. You are going to have presidential hopeful Nikki Haley on Face the Nation Sunday as they prepare for more primaries and caucuses ahead. Uh, She's really appearing anywhere and everywhere at this moment, Margaret. Well, let's make it or break a time. Uh, And New Hampshire is a state that is so key for Nikki Haley to be able to demonstrate to her donors, uh, those who help her stay in this campaign, that she can be an alternative to Donald Trump in a state where, uh, though Donald Trump is currently leading in the polls, it has uh, the ability to reflect perhaps a wider swath of the Republican electorate than the state of Iowa did. It's not quite so ruby red. New Hampshire is the live free or die state. They have a lot of libertarian um, uh, ideology there. They have independents who could come in and vote in this primary as part of the semi-closed primary process. That means she could have, you know, the college professors at Dartmouth, as well as the, the, the farmers of New Hampshire in their voting. It's a, it's a case study for can this uh, win be replicated elsewhere. But let's be clear, she's running for second place. And if she says she's not when it comes to the VP, mm-hmm. but when it comes to this primary, she is. And that is uh, the big test here for the Republican Party, who may need a backup plan to the 45th president, who faces 91 felony count indictments against him. The reason these primaries matter is because they lead to delegates to be decided uh, at the um, summer events, uh, these conventions where the parties pick their nominee. And right now in the CBS polling, Nikki Haley is the strongest candidate to defeat Donald Trump by eight points. Our polling shows DeSantis and Trump would also beat Joe Biden at this point, but by a much smaller margin. That is CBS's Margaret Brennan, chief foreign affairs correspondent and moderator of Face the Nation. Again, Nikki Haley, her guest this Sunday on CBS. 7.15 on a Friday. Yes, you have made it, folks. And now what a treat. We are joined by consumer man Herb Weisbaum, also contributing editor at Checkbook.org, to tell us more about the Biden administration's limits on how much banks can charge you for overdrawing on your account. Herb, good morning. Good morning, Colleen. I want to know a little bit more about the history of these overdraft fees, if you can. Were they created in order for banks to just profit? Have they been unfair or deceptive? What can you tell us about them? Well, they were created as a way to discourage people from overdrawing their accounts, but they were also created as a revenue stream. I think there's very little question about that. Uh, The banks have made a huge amount of money off of this. Um, According to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they uh, generated $280 billion since 2000 and nearly $9 billion just in 2022. So uh, clearly they're making a lot of money. The banks have always argued uh, that this is the cost of handling these 
to shortfalls when people take money out of their accounts they don't have. But the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when it started working on this proposed rule, and it's not a fact yet, it's a proposal, which will probably be challenged by the banking industry, a proposed rule, uh, they found out that it basically cost the banks about $8 to process uh, these uh, overdrafts, where in some cases they're charging $35 to handle them. So clearly it's not the cost of doing business. Clearly in many cases this is a revenue stream for the banks, and that's what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau wants to limit. They want to limit how much the financial institutions can charge you for overdrawing your account. Under this proposed rule, it was just published on Wednesday, it would drive down the cost, in some cases, capped at $3. Uh, that's a big difference from 35 or the average rate right now, which is 2661 according to bankrate.com. They're still pretty steep. They've been coming down the last year or two because of all the pressure from lawmakers in Congress and from regulators and the public and consumer groups pushing back. But 2661 to do an overdraft, when the average overdraft, the CFPB says, is 26 bucks and is repaid within three days, I think most people would consider fairly steep. Well, then the banks would lose money on this, right? Because if it costs $8 to process it and they're only charging 3 if somebody overdraws, I mean, yeah, they're going to fight this hard. Yeah, it's assumed that they will sue and to try to block this, uh, so everybody's prepared for that. If it goes through, it's we're talking October of 2025, but I don't think anybody expects that to happen. We expect this to to be shut down in a lawsuit, and then it'll, maybe it'll wake, make its way up to the Supreme Court. I don't know, but at least the proposal's out there on the books. It was published on Wednesday. I've certainly overdrafted in my day, uh, certainly when I was just no. starting out. I know, haven't we all, right? Like, let's just let's just get this all out here, and, and everybody raise your hand if you've overdrafted and been charged that fee. Uh, however, you know, and I find that these fees really only affect those who are uh, low to mid income, who are living paycheck to paycheck. Is it based on the unfairness of these fees? Is, is that why the Biden administration is going after this? Well, they consider this a junk fee. They think it's unfair, number one. It does tend to hurt people who can least afford it. And according to Rohit Chopra, who's the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when he uh, issued this rule on Wednesday, he made a statement and he said that these fees are often assessed for, quote, reasons people do not expect or understand, chip away at needed income and take a heavy toll on the family's living paycheck to paycheck. Sometimes, he says, based on their data, this actually forces people to leave the banking system system altogether and limit their ability to get ahead financially. So I think that's why the Biden administration is going after these fees. And Herb, our producer, David Burbank, has a question for you. Yeah, Herb. So um, for me, when I've had uh, recently some of these overdraft fees, it's actually been uh, due to the some of these buy now, pay later uh, ah. purchases that I have made and that my mm-hmm. wife have, has made. Um and it feels like those kind of go hand in hand. You you do one of these buy now, pay later. Uh, and so it'll charge your account every two weeks. And if you're not expecting that charge and you don't have the money in your account, you obviously then be overdrawn. Um, is there are we seeing research in, in a correlation there? Is, is there going to be maybe some more regulations uh, proposed for these buy now, pay later uh, sort of services as well, do you think? 
Yes, there are two reasons uh, why the overdrafting has, has gone up. Number one is the buy now, pay later. And a lot of people, David, take out multiple ones, four, five, and six. So there's all these deadlines. The money's coming out all the time, and the money may not be in the account. Uh, that is another area that regulators are going to be focusing on. We wrote a story about that recently So because people are getting themselves in trouble. And while there may not be interest, they're getting hit with bank fees. Um, the other one is the use of the debit card, the wide use of debit cards. People, you know, old folks like, like yours truly used to have uh, check registers and keep track of everything. Now you just give them the debit card. And if you've signed up for the overdraft protection, which some people do, even though they don't think they did, you will. I'd rather have the de- transaction decline. But if you sign up for the overdraft protection, the, the, the transaction will go through and you'll wind up paying a fee. I need to point out, and because Colleen asked this, a number of financial institutions in the last couple of years since 2021, because of all the pressure, some real big name banks have either eliminated overdraft fees mm-hmm. or made it a lot easier for you not to overdraft. And while the banking industry reacted to this proposal by saying it will end overdraft protection and it will, you know, consumers are going to be harmed by this, these banks have not gone out of business. Yes, they've lost revenue and they're going to have to figure out a way to make it back. But these banks who are doing this, you know, a couple of big ones, you know, are Capital One. Uh, they have absolutely eliminated all overdraft fees. Bank of America dropped its fee wow. from 35 to $10. Wells Fargo gives you a 24-hour grace period before being charged an overdraft fee. And Chase has a system where uh, instead of charging $34, if you are overdrawn by 50 bucks or less, they're going to make it easy for you to not be overdrawn. So these are big banks that are making it work uh, despite the fact that there are changes here. So the, the idea that this is going to drive the overdraft protection or banks, you know, out of business or not serving their customers to some seems uh, a very, uh, the, the house is on fire, the house is on fire kind of situation. I don't know why I'm surprised a bank would willingly do this. Uh, my, my last question, though, is could you avoid a lot of this strife by just going credit union? Well, credit unions also charge overdraft fees. Uh, the way to get around this is the number the two ways. Number one, keep track of things. And number <laughs> two, a lot of institutions will let you link your checking account to a savings account or another account that will automatically funnel the money in if there's about to be an overdraft. That The, the other thing is changing is that in some cases, uh, they used to uh, charge a significant amount of money for the service. That is starting to be whittled away as well. And it's a lot cheaper than an overdraft situation. So see if your financial institution does that. Also, if you signed up for overdraft protection on your debit card, which you think may be protecting you, what that means is if you use your debit card and you don't have the money to cover it, they're going to cover it for you and maybe ding you with a very big overdraft fee. So you need to figure out what you have on that card and what you really want on that card. Would you rather have it declined and not get charged a fee, or would you rather have it accepted and charged the fee? Yeah, great question. Herb Weisbaum, always enjoy you empowering us to keep our money. You can read more about this at checkbook.org. Herb, thank you so much. Thank you, too. And now it's time for the Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. In today's Daily Dose of Kindness, an Ohio 10-year-old girl has made it her mission to help women battling breast cancer. Reed Campbell's mother, Beth, was not surprised this became her calling. She just, she really feels for other people and it's easy to see that and so this this project was just right up her alley and um we're very very proud of her reed's idea was to provide care packages for women getting treated at area hospitals why because my aunt was diagnosed with breast cancer this past year and i 
felt like I wanted to help some ladies going through that too. Redesigned figurines and sold them on Facebook to raise money for the bags, hand painting those figurines for hours. She raised $400 to put together more than two dozen packages. Dr. Sabrina Shalad handed them out to very appreciative patients. More than one um, got a little teary-eyed because they were just so touched that someone would do this. And then when they found out she was only 10, they were just like, oh, this is so wonderful. Um, so a lot of our patients were so touched. It, um, a few of them were just like, you know, it's so great to see that they're still good out in the world. The packages included a blanket, lip balm, honey sticks, Starbucks gift cards and more. Really easy for anyone to do. I do like a Friday. Good music. 814. We're joined by Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich now, who has been hanging out with Olympia, rubbing elbows with Democrats and Republicans alike, covering all things going on this legislative session. What have you brought us today, Matt? Well, good morning. Good Friday morning, Colleen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I got a couple things. We're going to talk about a very serious bill. Then we're going to talk about uh, another attempt to remove Trump from the uh, ballot, uh, if time permits. Now, Senate Bill 6109 is one of those bills that I found that had extremely emotional debate, deep, deep divides on both sides. And what this bill does is basically address issues related to child abuse and neglect, particularly the presence of highly lethal fentanyl near children and babies. It would basically give permission for the police to remove a child immediately from that scene. That now, seems obvious. Uh, yeah, it does. But here, well, here's what it kind of does. Now, currently, anyone can petition to uh, alleging a child's dependency on the state, you know, giving them to the state because of abuse, neglect, including instances of sexual abuse, exploitation or severe neglect. Now, under this proposed bill, the definition of imminent physical harm is expanded to include physical uh, child abuse or neglect resulting from the presence of high potency synthetic opioids, namely fentanyl in a home or the exposure of the child. So they're expanding the definition. Now, this marks a significant step in recognizing the specific dangers posed by fentanyl in the context of child welfare. Now, yesterday, the Senate Committee on Human Services took testimony from experts, lobbyists, doctors, former addicts and parents. Emotional testimony on both sides. Joyce Gilbert, a pediatrician from Olympia, testified in favor of the bill. These toddlers are showing up in our emergency rooms unresponsive, needing full life support. And we don't know why until we figure out that it's fentanyl. These children are dying. The bill gives law enforcement the authority to take a child in custody without a court order. That's a big deal. If there is probable cause, a child is an immediate uh, or an imminent physical harm related to fentanyl. Now, the court hearing will take place 72 hours after the child's been taken into custody. And during these hearings, the law says the judge has to give substantial weight to the presence of fentanyl if a child's been exposed to that, you know, kind of make that an extraordinary condition. The judge can deem it necessary then to remove the child from the parents or their home, uh, prevent the, the exposure to continuing. And now hospitals are also empowered to detain a child under the same and similar circumstances without waiting for a court order. Now, Lori Vandenberg, the executive director of, of Dawson Place, that's a child advocacy center which places about 1,100 children a year who have been victims of child abuse into safer environments, has concerns. I understand the trauma of removal. I understand disproportionality. And I am terrified because we have children dying on our watch. 
it's not realistic to believe that parents who are actively using fentanyl and other drugs are going to be able to carefully track where they store their drugs. It just does not happen. Now, universally, everybody who testified said, you know, fentanyl is an awful scourge on society, and the immediate removal of a child for where fentanyl is found, some said, could do more harm than good. Jennifer Justice testified against the bill. In 2015, my life took a devastating and traumatic turn when my newborn and older sons were taken away from me due to my struggles with opiate addiction. The system failed to provide the necessary support, leading to an eight-year battle with addiction, depression, and homelessness. And she said with counseling and help from Child Protective Services, she was able to give birth to another child that the state let her keep. And she said if that didn't happen, she may have ended her life. Now, Dr. Misha Turplin is also an, uh, is an OBGYN. Now, he called the bill anti-science, anti-child, and anti-recovery. Parents who use drugs can safely parent, and there's no evidence that separating children from their parents means that they're less likely to die of any cause, much less from accidental ingestion. This bill might actually increase opioid fatalities by driving parents away from life-saving care. Hmm. No, it was interesting uh, to wrap this up, uh, Colleen. The, both Democrats and Republicans voiced, now these are just Democrats and, and Republicans on the committee, uh, voiced support for the bill during the hearing. The committee is expected to vote on forwarding the bill to the full Senate on January 22nd. That's interesting. And I have heard that children, and, and Heather Bosch, a report, she's done extensive reporting on fentanyl and that children can be uh, uh, the motivator to get somebody off drugs and by removing the child from the parent it suddenly becomes well what do i have to live for now i might as well just keep doing drugs so i can hear that argument of Mm -hmm. keep the child with the family but make sure the parents then get entered into a program pass them off to a social worker rather than cps so i i can see that argument yeah, and the legalese part of this is that expanding that definition of child abuse, that just the presence mm-hmm. of fentanyl in the house is child abuse, and then it triggers all these other actions now. So that's what this bill is really after. Um, uh, finally, I just want to talk about that Trump removal uh, or the court decision yesterday in Thurston County that you brought up in the news. Um, you know, Frankie Ithaca is a school teacher from Port Orchard and was the main person behind yesterday's court effort to remove Donald Trump from the March 12th primary ballot. Now, I spoke with her yesterday. She admits that she wrote up the affidavit by herself without an attorney that was required by the court and was used as the basis for any decision for Trump's name to be removed to the ballot. Now, Thurston County Superior Court Judge Mary Sue Wilson used that affidavit that she wrote to make her ruling yesterday, and then she denied her request. So I asked this question. What did you learn in the last week of just doing all this? Um, it's better to have a lawyer. (laughs) Um, we're down, but we're not out. Now, the legislature is considering House Bill 2150. That would give lawmakers and the Secretary Secretary of State unprecedented powers to remove anyone from the ballot deemed ineligible to run for office. And many interpret the third paragraph of the 14th Amendment as an ineligible reason that deals with insurrection. If you're accused of insurrection, you can't run for office. If that passes the legislature, Frankie says she'll use that as another reason to go back to court and challenge the ballot in November. By the time the general election goes, 2150 will have passed, and we will be able to add that in addition to the 14th Amendment and take him off the general election ballot. 
Now, there's no guarantee that HB 2150 will pass, but she says she's going to she's not going to appeal this particular decision because she admits there was no beef in her affidavit that she wrote up and she didn't have all the attorney help. And so she's going to go get another attorney and and try and remove Trump's name from the November ballot, assuming he will win the Republican primary race on March 12th. We will come back with a beefed up affidavit that looks like a legal brief. And we'll see what the Republican Party says to that. Because part of her ruling today is that we had every standing to file this. So we're going to keep filing. It's not a political issue. It is an issue of the rule of law, period. And there you go. She's going to come back. Uh, we'll see if HB 2150 passes. Uh, like I said, it's unprecedented because if the if if it does pass... The state legislature, if they deem someone is ineligible, they can vote to have someone removed from the ballot. And we again, we have uh, a full demo- uh, legislature that's run by Democrats. The House is led by Democrats. The Senate's led by Democrats. We have a Democratic governor. Will they take this very political step to rem- to pass this bill and then go after Donald Trump in the uh, general election or even on the primary ballot? Because mm. it can be retroactive. Uh, we'll see. And, and how does her case compare to Colorado or Maine? Because those went through okay, and now they're making their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. What was so different about her petition that caused the judge to say, nah, we can't do this? Well, she she cited the Colorado case, and then right away the judge says, well, our election law is very different from... Uh, Colorado's. Mm. So she threw that argument right away. She, she said that Colorado's argument does not work here. Okay. And the, in, in the Colorado case, the judge was saying that cited specific Colorado election laws. Washington state is obviously different and has different election laws. And so, and that's why she said she admits that her affidavit, which she, you know, she heard this uh, idea. She got this idea when listening to a radio program and then went down there that day and filed it in Kitsap County where she should have gone to Thurston County. Okay. And so she was just trying and it was just a, 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 you know, an uneducated effort, I would just say, sure. on how to do all this. And she admits that. Well, it's, um, it's a nice thing in America. We even have the option to try, right? I mean, that's a free country for you. Yep. We'll see what happens with it. Matt, thank you so much for joining welcome, us. welcome, Colleen. 847 on Seattle's Morning News. Colleen O'Brien with you. David Burbank, our producer, is here. So is Chris Sullivan and Mickey Gomez. I'm blown away that there's a new generation <laughs> and I didn't know we were here. Generation Alpha. And they have their own language now? Yeah, they do, actually. And I have a Gen Alpha and a Gen Z living at home. So when I'm, you know, in the kitchen and I'm making dinner or I'm washing dishes, I can hear my kids talking and I'll hear my daughter say, period. And I'm like, well, you got you got your period. What? No, that's not what that means at all. She goes, stop. Stop trying I get that. to talk, mom. Right. Stop or, trying to make fetch happen. And then I started hearing the word got. Yeah. In my house, my daughter would go, yeah, and I'm like, what does it what? what? And then at one point it scared me and I didn't know what was going on. So I finally had to look it up because she wouldn't tell me what it means. Why and I wouldn't went, she tell you? Because she doesn't want it's their own language. Yeah, they don't and she want, doesn't want me saying it. The they second, don't want the second we start understanding yes. it, they're going to move off They'll from move it on. immediately. So giat, I don't know whoever's listening. G-Y-A-T. It means somebody with a big butt. Oh. So we were at we were at the like store. As a compliment. It can't. Yes. Okay. And my daughter goes, "Woo, got." And I went, "I know what that means now. Who are you talking? That girl over there." 
<laughs> like, Jeej. Yeah. Don't say that. Don't objectify strangers. Well, listen, these Gen Alpha is saying the word yacht so much, it's actually been banned at her school. Teachers know what it means, and there's one teacher that apparently has a juicy booty. Okay. And they walk in, and they're like, hey, teach yacht. Oh, my God. And wow. so they have now banned the word. They are not allowed to say it. I cannot imagine talking to so my teacher. So can we go back to junk in way. the trunk? Yes, that's exactly what, yes. Caboose. Scary Thank air. you. That's our, that's yes. our word. She's got junk in the trunk. Yes. But yes, it is yacht, and okay. it comes comes from I'm not going to say it but god and then yeah, that darn. other word like yeah. god mm. it comes from the other gosh darn yes mm-hmm. um, gosh darn okay thank you for translating that's yes. an interesting one and, i'll try that out in yeah. public and then no please don't no. <laughs> i'm going to a concert this weekend and i'm afraid i'm going to be the oldest one there and nah. so i need to, i i'm, I'm going to try it out okay mm-hmm. well then uh, sigma is another word my it's, i'm not bro anymore i'm not bruh Hey, bruh, because my daughter used to say, hey, bruh. And yeah. I'm like, no, I'm mom. I'm now Sigma. Yo, Sigma. Oh, so Sigma has replaced bruh. Bruh, yeah. Me- means leader. Oh, well, that's Why not nice. use alpha? Alpha is... Why not use mom? I don't know, because Sigma <laughs> Sigma means is a mathematical term. Well, all I know is that okay, my daughter is like, yo, it means yo, the you... sum of things. Calm this generation is very smart, I suppose. So, so you've got to use those words. So if, you, if your child is calling you Sigma, it means leader. That's but great. I prefer mom. Uh, Rizzler. Well. Comes from charisma. Yeah, we know Riz. Riz. So Rizzler is now yeah. like... Your, your pers- it sounds like a Batman villain, honestly. Yeah. It does. It really does. But yeah, so she'll be like, man, she she's like, she's a Rizzler, man. I'm like, what is that? And then I don't ask because I get side eye. And then it either means you're a good person yeah. or you're a flirt. Uh, yeah. Oh. So Jen Alpha says that the word um, skibidi. Skibidi. Skibidi came from a sounds YouTube like a series. Kid trying to say spaghetti. Uh-huh. It, yes, it sounds like that. But uh, apparently it doesn't really have a meaning to it. It's just something that a YouTuber came up with. And then last, phonum tax. I, I, okay, so I, I was reading up on this mm-hmm. one, knowing we were doing this segment, and you just said a, a YouTuber came up with mm-hmm. a phrase. A lot of these are coming from these online influencer personalities. Right. These mm-hmm. fra- They're like making a new language for their generation. So if you and I were out eating and you got a dish and it looks good, yeah. and I'm like, yo, Sigma, phonum tax. It means you can take some of my means, food. It means, mm. can you give me a little piece of that, please? I already have my, I call it get a... get my beak wet, you know? Get, that. get my what? beak wet. You guys don't know that. Maybe that's, maybe that's a millennial that's term. That's 1920s term I'm, for, I'm a corrupt cop. I need to get my beak wet. I need a piece. Really means give me a little It's like I need a piece got. of the action, yeah. right? Period. That's for, yeah, that's like, hey, you know, I got to get my taste. Well, now that's the phantom right? tax, I suppose. Well, that's the phantom, that's the phantom tax. I call it the mommy tax. Uh-huh. Anytime really? I make my kids something oh, and it looks good. I go, mommy tax. Oh, yeah. When they, when they get a tax. Halloween give me, candy. Give me 10%. Take a little bit. Take a little for yourself. Get, yeah. Give me 10%. Give me 20% of, mm-hmm. of that food over there. Hey, yo, Sigma. This is tax. why we have trouble talking. This is why we are so divided in our country. We all have so many different <laughs> languages. And we can't talk to each other because we have no idea what you're saying. Yeah. Bet. Tom, Tom stopped using bet five years ago. Uh, I know. Well, you know what? I mean, the kids are using it, and I had to know what my children were saying. Yeah. I can't believe it. So, well, thank you for translating. Well, you're very all welcome. of these seem very innocent and fun, and actually uh, confidence building. Right? I guess. I hope so. Gen Alpha uh, is going to phase out in 2024, and then in 2025, 
that will be Gen Beta. So, oh, so we're going for the Alpha Beta. D- d- yeah. We're doing that? Okay. Yeah, we started late. We went from baby boomers into like what? Gen X. X. And just, we started at the, the top millennial. and now we're recycling. Mm-hmm. Gen- 150 okay. years? Somebody's going to be triple X. That's going to be you know, double oh. X. That'll be something. <laughs> wonder what their language is going to be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.